Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in Western Montana. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We have had a little uh, short-term hiatus while we shut down the farm for the season and tore down our greenhouses to move over to our new property as we'll be rebuilding our farm next year from the ground up. Um, Had a little winter holiday up in Canada and now we're back, back in business, back uh back at work and figured it was about time to dive back into the podcast world as Jay especially has been working away on research around a pretty important topic that we want to talk about and start to bring some awareness to. So for today's episode, we would like to dive into the world of the cattle industry, the agriculture industry, and just begin to dissect, if you will, a variety of topics that we've been hearing more and more about through social media, through government organizations, and we would like to share what those topics and arguments are and provide some backing on why we disagree with them. And so some of the things that we would like to touch on today related specifically to arguments against food production of animal-based products will include livestock will never be carbon neutral because they emit greenhouse gases. Second, livestock production on pasture cannot sequester carbon. Third, a large portion of arable crops grown are consumed by livestock. And finally, if we switch to a plant-based diet, we can take huge amounts of land out of production and rewild those lands, further sequestering carbon. So those are the four main arguments that we're going to cover today. And with that, we'll talk a little bit about in more detail of what that specific argument is and why we disagree with it and the science that we have found that says, yeah, maybe these things aren't quite what social media is portraying them to be. Certainly, or at least we can't make the drastic conclusions that some people are trying to make with whatever preconceived notions, ideological beliefs, religion, welfare advocates, etc. But so first, like we need to discuss a little bit about what is a ruminant because it's a very complicated process being a multicellular organism. It's really hard to break down all of the intricacies of how such a complex organism works. But for ruminants, for people who don't know what ruminants are, so ruminants are species that um, are all mammals. They are, have multi-chambered stomachs that have allowed them to adapt to plant to digest plant compounds that are very hard to digest for normal monogastric species. This includes cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignans. Humans aren't able to digest these um, these compounds. We can only partially digest hemicellulose. But we really struggle with the digestion of cellulose and certainly of lignin. We just cannot digest that. There are actually few organisms that are able to. And that's why a lot of plant compounds persist and store carbon in the soil. So what's a monogastric species that I just talked about? A monogastric species is us. So it's humans, it's pigs, chickens. It's having one stomach. And we use you know, hydrochloric acid, bile, and other 
uh, enzymes and compounds to help us break down our food into constituent elements and molecules so we can reuptake it and recomplex it into our bodies. And their ruminants have been around for, gosh, I think it's about 50 million years now. They started off as forest-dwelling omnivores. And over the course of 50 million years, they have diverged from their original, probably little forest creature, to over 200 species across a number of different genera. So these genera, they include, genera are just the plural for genus. So you have, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, gen, genus, species. It's just their uh, taxonomy classification. But as far as uh, the families, so there's the cervid family or the cervidae family, and that's all of your deer, your elk, your monk jack, your moose, your reindeer. They're found almost everywhere around the, around the world, from the Arctic tundra down right to the equator. And they're found in a wide variety of habitats, ranging from desert to grasslands to swamps and forests. And then you have another family, which is called the Bovidae family, and that's about actually 143 species and about 50 genera. That's yak, bison, buffalo, antelope, sheep, and goats. There's also giraffe. There's Tregulidae, which are those little mouse deer. You should look them up. They're quite cute. You have hippopotami, hippopotamus, hippopotami, plural, <laughs> hippopotamus, that are ruminants too. So these, you know, these are across different families and multitudes of different genera wide across the animal kingdom, right across all terrestrial ecosystems outside of the Antarctic. And I think actually Australia, they don't have any native um, ruminants on that landscape, but these are well adaptive animals. These are animals that have figured out a way through their digestive process to break down these extremely hard to digest compounds that are produced by plants. We can't do that. We can't eat grass. And you like, go ahead if you want to eat wheatgrass, but you can't eat grass and expect to have a uh, healthy outcome. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's probably why with wheatgrass, the best way for humans to consume it is by juicing it and consuming the juice if you actually want the nutritional benefits from it, Good not point. by munching on the grass itself. That's right. And so contrary to what you've probably been hearing around social media and the government, Methane production actually comes from cows belching, not farting. Hence the reason why we're calling this podcast Farting Up a Storm. It's just a misnomer of to the, uh, on the, not a misnomer, but a indication of the lack of awareness and understanding of what actually is going on. That you just hear so many people like about cow farts and causing climate change. And it's not that, certainly mm -hmm. not that. Certainly the methane, or not the methane production, but the nitrous oxide emissions and some carbon dioxide emissions coming from urine and manure deposition, um, certainly in CAFOs, but also on the landscape, does contribute to greenhouse gases. But does it contribute to climate change is another question. And so the first, you know, Ashley went through the, if you will, the, the summary of what we're going to be covering. But I think it's important to note uh, a... Um, excuse me, a quote from John Muir back, I think it was back in the 40s or 50s. But he said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And what he means by that is that everything is interconnected. And when you draw out or pull away 
some gigantic section of a complex ecosystem, you're going to have ramifying complications. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no, there's also another quote that I remember, I forget who, who said it, but there's, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have significant trade-offs, in my opinion, if we take livestock off the landscape and switch to a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And part of what inspired us to develop this specific series for our podcast was our frustration as both farmers, people um, ingrained in the agriculture community, and also people with scientific backgrounds and education. When we see things on social media with hundreds of thousands of likes and comments supporting it, and it says something along the lines of how we shouldn't eat cows because they fart and cause global warming and hundreds of thousands of people are like oh great i'm on board someone on social media said i shouldn't eat cows because they're farting and it's going to destroy our world and then to see so many people just like hop on that bandwagon without any thought or curiosity or desire to like question what they're reading or becoming part of it just irks us (laughs) it It frustrates us so much because i don't know i guess that's the world we live in these days so much is available at people's fingertips every second of the day and people do more than ever right now people are having a hard time understanding where to go to find the most accurate trustworthy information and as you all know part of this podcast is that we are doing our best to find that sourced information for you. So all of our research comes from peer-reviewed papers that can back both our opinions, but also back the countering opinions if there's any evidence there. And so it's not just like we're not just creating this one-sided argument based on a single thought or single opinion we have. What we're doing today is breaking down those arguments and providing the science to help people gain some curiosity and just start to think about what you're what you're preaching or what other people are preaching to you. Absolutely. And that's and that's how we critically think. And that's what I was taught in school. You know, up until 2012 at Brown, all we were doing was analyzing and critiquing papers, looking deep into the methods, trying to understand all the statistical analysis and see if the the research that was coming out of um, universities across the country and the world at the time were actually creating sound research in the domain of behavioral psychology for which I majored in. And we were taught how to critically think. And nowadays it's so much easier to just scroll into the next in- Instagram post and not take a step back, listen to what somebody is claiming to be true and real and see for yourself to critically analyze what they are purporting. And it's really hot, easy to confirm your biases out there. And just a reminder, every single person on this planet has internal biases. There's not one person on this planet that does not have some sort of bias, including me, including Ashley, including mm-hmm. my mother. <laughs> and so the purpose of a true scientist, a true scholar, is to mitigate those biases that potentially confound the results and the way we look at results. Mm-hmm. And we do our best, right? But there are so many people who slip, you know, it's a slippery slope. It's people 
well, more readily, it's more easily done to fall back on your biases and confirm what you read or confirm your beliefs on based on what you read. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been finding. So there's environmental activists out there like George Monbiot, who's claiming quite ludicrous truths about the the livestock industry and and people like Simon Hill, who I guess is like a, I think he has like a master's in nutrition and all of a sudden he's an expert on the agriculture industry. And it was even funny in one of his Instagram posts, he's like, everybody try to forego your previously held deep convictions about anything and try to just listen to the data and listen to the science. Well, it's pretty obvious given Simon's conversations about this, that he doesn't even understand how to raise livestock or grow crops. He doesn't understand the cycles mm-hmm. of, of nitrogen and carbon in our soils and in our atmosphere across sources and sinks. He just doesn't understand it. And we'll, we'll get into the, the depths of, of why we believe that these people don't truly understand this. And maybe you should consider not, uh, consider not listening to them or at least counter, what is it? Critically analyzing, excuse mm-hmm. me, what they're saying. Yeah. And, you know, you can always comment or reach out with a differing opinion. And that'll say a lot about a person and how they respond to you or choose not to respond to you if your opinion's different than them. Because science at the end of the day continually has room for new knowledge, for new things to be found, for new things to be sco- to be discovered. And it's, there's not a lot that is like set. No, no, it needs to be falsifiable. No good science is not falsifiable. Wait, is that right? The double negative. (laughs) All good science is falsifiable. There we go. It's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Meaning that it can be proven to be wrong. If something can't be proven to be wrong, then it's not sound science. Mm -hmm. And if someone that is preaching a particular idea is unwilling to hear the other side of the argument that has science backing it, that should raise some questions. Yeah. They're conflating the, the, the discord. Mm-hmm. Um, well, w- let's just get into it. Yeah. Let's, say. So we'll start off by talking about the first argument that we've been hearing about. So livestock will never be carbon neutral because they emit greenhouse gases. Everyone these days hears about uh, people making claims that they're carbon neutral or have net zero whatever and a lot of bullshit to go with it. For sure. Uh, But we'll start by diving into how greenhouse gas emissions are related to farming and natural biological processes. Yeah. So calculating greenhouse gas emissions of livestock without including rates of carbon emissions is like claiming the winner of a football game based on only one team's score. And so it's argued that pasture-based livestock production cannot sequester carbon because all soils inevitably reach a carbon saturation point where low amounts, low amounts of carbon per year are able to be sequestered into the soil. The carbon emissions from the decomposition of soil organic matter becomes equal to the carbon entering the soil ecosystem. Therefore, pasture-based livestock production will never be able to be carbon neutral as they will always be greenhouse gas emitters through enteric fermentation. Now, that's the argument that I heard a lot or is being purported a lot by George Monbiot and other policymakers, environmental activists, government officials, even the damn president of the United States, per se. And so it's true. When a soil does reach a carbon saturation point, the net flux or the net movement 
between carbon pools can occur. It's also true that cows emit carbon dioxide and methane gas as a byproduct of enteric fermentation. But this is not the end of the story, and this is not where the conversation ends. First of all, increasing the percentage of organic matter in a soil will inextricably inextricably, excuse me, increase the quantity of carbon dioxide and nitrous uh, nitrous oxide gas emissions from that soil, with or without animals on the landscape. Now, this has to do with carbon and nitrogen emissions from plant and microbial respiration. In fact, 50% of all carbon that was drawn down from the atmosphere by photosynthesis is emitted right back into the atmosphere by plant respiration. People don't realize that plants breathe just like we do. It's part of their natural metabolic process to use the stored energy that they've gained through photosynthetic systems from the PS1 and PS2 systems. And this is a this is all very complicated and and please feel free to pause and look mm-hmm. this info up and if it takes days to get through this podcast, I understand. Mm-hmm. It took us months to get ready for this podcast and years of reading about all of these systems. Or if anyone wants to fund a smart board for us, we will gladly get some videos up with uh, diagrams to match all this information and go into uh, go into it a little bit deeper. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And so why do plants respire? All right. So plants, when it's, when the sun is, is when the sun is up, plants start undergoing photosynthesis. As most people know out there, excuse me, I'm burping. As most people contributing to greenhouse gases. Yeah. I mean, did you see that post about, I think it was in New York post or something that, um, just by people breathing is causing climate change. It's (laughs) like, Oh, come on you guys. But anyways, so what is plant respiration? So when the sun comes up, plants start capturing photons that are emitted by the sun from 93 million miles away. It takes about eight, nine minutes to get here. And all of a sudden, that photon that is massless hits the photosynthetic, um, for lack of better words, structures in the plants called chloroplasts. They capture those photons and store it into simple sugars. That energy is now stored and there's potential energy in those chemical compounds. But that sun is not up forever. And so when the sun goes down, the plants still need to survive and perform their metabolic activities. Well, with all this stored carbon and stored sugars in their bodies, they're able to use some of that energy for their normal metabolic processes. So they are not breathing out oxygen anymore they're breathing out carbon dioxide just like us what yeah does that mean we should cut all plants down yep yep they're causing climate change too and so like with cattle if we we're only able to tally up the total greenhouse gas emissions from plants then we would conclude that plants are net emitters however this is not the case plants are not and net are net carbon sequesters because they fix more carbon than they emit this understanding will become very important later in the podcast And so let's run through what happens each year on a given acre of land and explain how carbon dioxide emissions increase with higher quantities of carbon stored in the soil. When the soil begins to warm in spring and early summer, the metabolic rate of the soil life, the fungi, the bacteria, and worms increases. Below below 60 degrees Fahrenheit in soil temps, the metabolic rate of bacteria and fungi are significantly lower, almost exponentially lower than if the soil is over 60 degrees. So the soil life will start consuming living and dead material and then are excreting their metabolic byproducts, 
things like carbon dioxide. Elements and molecules are thereby released into the soil. For example, when soil or when microbes decompose soil organic matter, nitrogen is released in the form of nitrate, which is NO3 minus. And for each percentage point of soil organic matter in the upper six inches of medium textured soil, you can expect that 10 to 20 pounds of nitrogen is released per year. This process is called soil mineralization. And this process is essential for plant growth, but also for us. This process inexorably emits greenhouse, ga- greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, meaning that there's no way around this natural process of emissions. Examples of these natural greenhouse gas emissions from the soil include carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. Therefore, this process, the main process in nature that provides nutrients for plant growth, is carbon positive and greenhouse gas emitting. If we are supposed to take cows off the landscape because they're emitting carbon dioxide and methane, then why shouldn't we take all soil life out of the carbon and nitrogen cycle too? Both are contributors, cows and microbes. They emit greenhouse gases. (laughs) Well, thank baby Jesus for plants. As many of you know, plants do the opposite. They take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fix it into glucose and other organic compounds. This is called primary production, and it's the basis of all life on the planet. It's in the first trophic level, pretty much. Plants also develop a symbiotic relationship with nitrogen-fixing organisms that are able to fix nitrogen from the extremely stable triple-bonded nitrogen gas. People think that plants fix nitrogen. No, it's their relationship with bacteria. The bacteria are doing that fixation. And in exchange for sugars for the bacteria's metabolic processes, the uh, bacteria give fixed nitrogen to to the plant for this plant to use for growth and whatever it needs. This process of photosynthesis is energy storing, meaning that the plants are absorbing photons and storing this energy in chemical bonds, as I said earlier. Just a quick side note to give you a visualization of this phenomena, phenomenon, because it's, it's really, it's a goddamn miracle, to put it bluntly. So when nuclear fusion occurs in the center of the sun, hydrogen is actually turned into helium and photons are released. It takes one million years for that photon to travel from the center of the sun to the edge of the sun. And once that photon is emitted and travels to the earth, it takes only eight minutes. Mm. So it has a life of a million years trying to get out of the sun. It's just knocking next to its neighbors and going every which way. And then all of a sudden, eight minutes gets to that plant. And as soon as that plant, that photon goes into the chloroplast and fixed into fixed with carbon dioxide, and it's storing sugars, that energy is all of a sudden absorbed. And that is the basis of all energy distribution across the planet throughout all species, except for a few bacteria down in deep sea vents that don't need this type of energy input. All right. That was a lot. I'm going to keep on going. Are you good so far? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry right. on. So when nitrogen and carbon-based molecules are mineralized by these soil microbes, the energy stored in these organic molecules is then transferred to the organisms. The byproducts are molecules that plants require for their own growth. Some of these byproducts are gases like carbon dioxide and nitrogen. Well, plants absolutely need carbon dioxide gas. In fact, the photosynthetic rate, meaning the, the, the amount of, of primary production happening over time, is positively correlated with increased concentrations of carbon dioxide gas in the atmosphere. This is well known in the scientific literature, and they have a name for it. It's called the carbon fertilization effect. Mm. 
In 2006, a team of researchers conducted a meta-analysis on plant growth and soil nutrient cycling with respect to elevated levels of carbon dioxide gas in the atmosphere. They summarized 117 different studies on plant biomass production and soil organic matter dynamics. They found that nitrogen immobilization, meaning the amount of nitrogen that became immobilized in the soil that resists degradation by these microbes, it increased by where is that 22% while rem- while the mineralization of that same nitrogen remained or that similar nitrogen in the soil remained unaffected meaning that increased concentrations of carbon dioxide gas positively affected the amount of nitrogen that is stored in the soil for then plants to eventually use when it's mineralized by by the microbes but the rate of mineralization did not change meaning we are adding additional nitrogen molecules to the soil plant nexus This is very good news for organic farmers. We need, as organic farmers, we can't use inorganic nitrogen fertilizers as inputs through the Haber-Bosch process. We have to get nitrogen in the form of organic molecules. And so this is invaluable to organic farmers. And so these researchers also, they found increased soil respiration rates. Uh, and the overall soil carbon percentage increased about 1.2% per year, meaning there's more organic carbon in the soil with increased concentrations of carbon dioxide gas. In addition, they found that above-ground and below-ground plant biomass production, meaning roots and shoots, increased by 22% and 28% respectively. To summarize, increased levels of atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide increase plant growth rates and positively affect soil nutrient cycling. So if we have more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, plants will grow faster and store more carbon in the soil. It's a positive feedback loop, which helps to buffer the changing climate. Plants will be changing or will be buffering the changing climate. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) If we yeah. didn't have this, I mean, where would we be? We would have run away, run away climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if um, just thinking about a landscape that contains no plants, like say, say cattle was removed from a landscape and it's been degraded and it's really nothing but like desert or, or soil or not even soil because there's sand. no life left in it, but just sand or dirt. Um there's just there's just nothing there. There's no no longer a uh, cycle taking place, no. either putting out CO two or nitrogen or sequestering, or sequestering it. it. Yeah, there's no movement. When we reduce the movement of zero through these carbon sources and sinks, is when life dies. As we incre- increase the velocity or the the movement of these molecules through these systems, more life can survive off these systems. It's the same thing with the velocity of money in an, in an economy. We are talking about economics when we're talking about these systems. As you increase the velocity of money through a economy, it increases the total value of that economy. For mm-hmm. example, I think we've said this in an early podcast, but if I have, if there's ten dollars in an economy and it exchanges hands once, that's a value of ten dollars. If there's ten dollars in an economy, it exchanges a hundred hands, that's a thousand dollars worth in the economy. Mm-hmm. And this is the same thing we're talking about. But anyways, <laughs> do you <laughs> so, have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah. I was just going to, to just like 
try to simplify things a little bit from my understanding. So although, yes, cows on a landscape will inevitably inevitably (laughs) release methane and carbon dioxide, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the top contributor to global warming or climate change or CO2 emissions. No. It doesn't mean that having cows on the landscape consuming grass and pooping and peeing is causing harm to the soil below them. No, and we'll talk more about this, but it really has to do with the management style and the Mm -hmm. stocking rates on that land and how much primary production is happening on a given unit of land, meaning how much energy is being captured by plants to the sun and is being transferred into other complex organisms through consumption. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's hop back into what happens to the... What happens in soil over the course of a year? Sure. You want me to go? Yeah. All right. So when the soil emits carbon dioxide, some of that gas actually finds its way right back into the pores or the stoma underneath the leaves on the plant. And this process starts all over again, right? It's the movement of carbon dioxide or of carbon-based molecules through organisms that creates life. Mm -hmm. It's not just the emissions going into the atmosphere. It's also what's coming back. And so when that soil mineralizes or when those microbes in the soil mineralize organic matter and gases are emitted, some of those gases go right back into the system through the plant. It just is this feedback loop. Hence why it's called the carbon cycle. Carbon cycle. That's just one part of the carbon cycle. But this is what drives the carbon cycle and the movement of carbon from one carbon pool to the other. And I, I want to drive this this understanding home. Plants are the nexus between soil and atmosphere. And they help buffer the massive volume of carbon emitted into this atmosphere by plants, by animals, and by microbial respiration. However, what would happen if all respiration were to suddenly stop and the plants drew down all of the atmospheric carbon out of the atmosphere? Everything would die. Literally everything would die. Most life on this planet, except for some serious... I forget their call, but it's a classification of organisms that can seriously resist outside envi- environmental factors. Extremophiles. Extremophiles. Earth's mean temperature, if all carbon dioxide or all carbon was taken out of the atmosphere, mean average temperature of the world would be zero degrees Fahrenheit. That would just be the average. Right now, the average temperature is 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So we would have this 59 degree drop in temperature on average. We would go into the deepest, deepest, darkest ice age that you, the world has ever seen. But we've never gotten there because plants have been around and respiration of organisms that are not plants have been around. Mm-hmm. It's a buffering. It's a feedback loop. And so one of the main goals for sustainable agriculture is to balance the influx and efflux, uh, or meaning the in and out of elements in and out of our soil. If this net movement of molecules is balanced, the soil has more of a chance to remain fertile over time. If there is more input into the into the lands than output, lands can become more toxic and pollute our water rays. Think of it about confined animal feeding operations where there's massive mounds of manure and lagoon settling ponds. That is not that is too much fertilizer. There's too much feed or too much manure on a given unit area of land. On the other side, 
fertility fertility declines when there's more elements drawn out of the soil than what is inputted, thereby increasing humanity's dependence on fossil fuel-based fertilizers. Our agricultural practices greatly determine the amount of carbon that is either stored in or lost from our soils. Things like conservation tillage and pasture-based agriculture have the greatest ability to achieve at least a net zero flux or positive carbon flux, i.e. carbon sequestration. Without sounding too apocalyptic, we don't want to draw down too much soil or everything on this planet will perish. Draw down too much CO2? Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) What did I say? Soil. Oops. (laughs) We want soil. We want more soil. We want more soil. But yeah, and if you think about a CAFO confined operation for cattle, um, of course it makes sense that you know, if you look statistically, it seems like there is a hell of a lot of emissions coming from that place. Because if you look at the land that those cows are standing on, because they're all packed in there so tightly, there's no opportunity for vegetation to grow below them, therefore reducing the opportunity for carbon to be sequestered by those plants, taking it in to the soil to feed those microbes and let them do that work. Yeah. And so it comes back to maybe it's not so much that the cows are (laughs) bad for us and this planet, but that the way we as humans have begun to raise these foods over the past generations. Yeah, just a few generations. Mm -hmm. Up until around the 1920s, we had eh, maybe more like 1940s, crops and animals were on the same same landscape same landscape right farms the bucolic agrarian lifestyle we always had livestock and we always had crops growing right next to livestock a farmer who's worth a lick of salt knows that you need animal based inputs for productive fertile lands you cannot just rely on plants to provide all of the fertility mm-hmm. needs of the landscape and we'll get into why leguminous nitrogen fixing cover crops are not the only answer for reducing the climate impacts of agriculture. It's only part of the solution. All right. So let's get back to soil. Mm -hmm. So the carbon sequestration potential of a soil is only partially dependent uh, on its base material composition. This is more getting to geology, but virtually all inorganic soil particles are derived from the erosion or wearing of, of of rock of bedrock some soils are very sandy and therefore they can sequester only a certain amount of carbon in the form of soil organic matter so a high a high uh, organic matter content of a sandy soil would be between three and five percent clay soils however can accumulate very high levels of organic matter sometimes seven to twelve percent or higher and because of their small size, clay particles and the aggregates of clay particles, they physically, think about this, they physically protect more organic matter from decomposition compared to large sand granules. In addition, particles of organic matter can literally chemically absorb or bind onto clay surfaces. They can be coated with clay particles, so thereby protecting mineralization by microbes, or they can be buried inside tiny, tiny little pores of soil aggregates. This all makes it difficult for microorganisms to physically come in contact with that organic matter in order to break it down and thereby resist decomposition. And so you probably heard about us talking about carbon saturation point. Well, what the hell is that? 
So soil carbon saturation point is defined as the upper limit in the amount of carbon a particular soil can store that will resist decomposition. So the best analogy for this, I think, is is you think of soil as a big parking lot, say at Costco, and the carbon-based molecules of the cars. So as that parking lot starts to fill up, fewer cars will be able to find the spaces to park and will eventually leave the lot. This is pretty much exactly the same as soil. As soil approaches its unique carbon saturation point, and every soil is different, the rate of carbon sequestration, meaning the amount of carbon or the amount of cars that can find parking spots, decreases. But the rate of emissions increase, more cars will leave the lot because they can't find parking spaces. This makes sense. There are less binding sites for organic carbon and few places to hide from microbial decomposition. Ultimately, those carbon-based molecules will assume a higher risk of mineralization by these microbes and subsequently become emissions. Comparatively, when a soil has been very depleted of organic matter by conventional tillage, which is crop production, and inorganic fertilizer production systems like for wheat and corn, there is ample room for the organic matter to hide and ample parking spots available in the soil. Now, any questions? Okay. If there is a land use change, and what is a land use change? Well, that's, say, turning uh, crop production back into pasture or turning crop production lands into forests or cutting down forests and turning it into crop production. This is called a land use change. Studies have shown significant increases in carbon sequestration rates. If there's a land use change from turning uh, to from conventional row crop production into organic management or pasture, even in the 2022 EPA report on greenhouse gas emissions and sinks in the USA, they showed that croplands converted to grassland are a net carbon sink of 42.6 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent per year in 2021 alone. And that's just in the United States. And there is a large body of literature detailing the loss of organic matter in topsoil among the various growing regions of the United States. Estimates show about a 50% loss in organic matter in this country since the dawn of the, the turn of the 20, 20th century. And so organic matter is actually only, it's not all carbon, right? Carbon-based molecules are not all carbon. There's oxygen, there's nitrogen, there's hydrogen, etc. And so on average, about 58% of organic matter is made up of pure carbon. So the amount of carbon currently in our soil is well, well below carbon saturation point and significant sequestration is possible. And if we are able to undersee a land use change toward these models, toward the models of conservation tillage or no tillage and pasture-based production systems, we will realize a significant sequestration for the next couple decades. However, as you remember with the um, sequestration analogy of the parking spots up to a certainly uh, up to a certain point, but that's that's okay. We don't need more carbon once saturation points have been met in soils. We don't need more carbon getting inputted and stored in the soil. We want that cor- carbon moving through living organisms now, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where life persists. That's where life exists is through the movement of these molecules. When I eat food, that is moving carbon into me so I can break it down and then recomplex it into my body building new cells, undergoing metabolic processes like respiration, etc. So, we're good? Yeah. Yeah, so let's uh so what would it look like if for example, 
our U.S. agriculture land has reached or is close to its carbon saturation point. It's almost at that max possible potential Parking to lot's be full. filled up. What about it? Yeah, what happens then? Um, well, the rate has slowed or stalled completely, but there's still the flux, the movement of carbon in and out of these carbon pools. So now we put cattle on pasture, and then they start farting and belching up a storm, a storm, so to speak. And now they're emitting methane and carbon dioxide as they ferment grass and forbs in their stomach. Well, according to these arguments, these, then these cattle are not able to sequester any more carbon, and it will always be net greenhouse gas emitters. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying there. Okay. Well, this is a really underdeveloped understanding of soil science and the movement of atoms between sources and sinks. And this is information that political activists, environmental activists are purporting and misconstruing. This argument fails to account for the fact that most of the carbon and nitrogen that cattle consume in the form of grass has only recently been sequestered from the atmosphere by plants and microbes. There is a net zero flux of carbon dioxide. Assuming the net flux of carbon and nitrogen in the soil remains zero, the amount of carbon and nitrogen consumed and emitted by livestock is equal or less than the amount that was recently sequestered by plants. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it seems like people are not looking at or are maybe intentionally avoiding the whole big picture. They're looking at the fact that cows fart and burp and emit yeah and because you know they're trying to bring soil science into this so let's fucking talk about soil science they're saying well once this carbon saturation point is met in soils the cows are still emitting therefore Mm -hmm. they're always going to be net positive emitters right but those emissions are coming from the sequestration the fixation rather not the sequestration but the fixation of carbon and nitrogen from plants and micros that recently happened Mm -hmm. it could have been the minute before that cow took a bite of that grass. That that carbon was then stored in sugars in that leaf or blade Mm -hmm. of grass. And so the point is that cattle simply do not become net contributors to greenhouse gas emissions and grazing systems since they are consuming carbon and nitrogen that was recently in their gaseous states. And we'll get back to this later in the podcast. Hopefully that made sense, everybody. I think so. I think um, with the... The base knowledge that I have that certainly helps create some clarity. And I think the point to really emphasize there is that what we've discovered in the research is that the whole picture isn't being viewed. It seems to be a biased point of view to try to make a point, a point that is not accurate. Yeah, based off of closely held convictions, these deep convictions that Simon Hill is talking about. Well, people don't. You know, some people, it's fine. If you don't want to eat meat because of animal welfare, you think that we shouldn't be eating conscious animals, like, okay, I, I can I can relate to that. I don't agree with it, but I can relate to it. I understand your point of view. But don't misconstrue science to support your claims. Mm-hmm. All right. How have we, as a culture, come to find that most of our topsoil has been lost in only the last hundred years? In order to answer answer this question, we need to have a better understanding of how topsoil is made, what it is, and how we've gotten to this point. So the top six inches of soil weighs about two million pounds in an acre. All right. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> so 1% of soil organic matter weighs about 20,000 pounds. You 
times 2 million pounds by 1%. Easy enough math. Since we know that carbon dioxide is produced when active organic matter, so fresh or recently dead plant manure or plant matter or manure, decomposes in the soil, we know that only a percentage of carbon in that residue, that crop residue or manure, will be sequestered. That's okay. That's normal. Under normal conditions, about 10 pounds of active organic matter, crop residue, is required to produce one pound of stable organic matter that persists over time in the soil. That's about a 10 to 1 ratio. Therefore, we would need about 200,000 pounds of active organic matter to increase soil organic matter by 1% on any given acre of land. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's truckloads, literal truckloads. About a cubic yard of, of soil is about, I think it's about 1,000 pounds. So you need 200, <laughs> you need 20 truckloads of manure to increase, um, actually more than that. You need 20 truckloads of compost to increase soil organic matter about 1% on any given acre of land. It's a lot. And mm-hmm. so carbon sequestration, the increase of organic matter on soil over time is a slow, long process. And so at the end of a crop cycle, when a farmer harvests their crop, there'll be varying amounts of carbon residue left over depending on the crop, right? When you harvest grain, you don't, you don't harvest the leaves, you don't harvest the stalks, you don't harvest the root. And so there's crop residue left over. So for a pretty good corn yield, for a 200 bushel corn yield per acre, there'll be about 10,000 pounds of crop residue per acre. And so that's equivalent, as we know, with a 10 to 1 ratio, that's equivalent to about 1,000 pounds of soil organic matter per year, or about a 0.05% increase in soil organic matter. That's not much. No, that's a tiny amount. Yeah. And, you know, we aren't including in the in that info the amount of carbon that is exuded uh, out of the plants during their life, right? Because not all carbon that plants fix is held in that plant. A lot of it's exuded or traded with microorganisms in the soil for other things that they need that they can't take up. All right. So the mineralization rate of carbon... Um, when an acre of land is tilled, is substantial. And so we're going to be talking about crop production here for a little bit. That is the the production of plants, not livestock. Mm -hmm. In a 1997 study out of the University of Minnesota, uh, Rasas Rikoski, I think, and colleagues sought to analyze the carbon dioxide and water vapor flux immediately following four different tillage practices. Okay. So these practices include mold, mold board plow, which is a very intensive type of, of uh, inverting the plow layer. Then you have uh, mold board plow following two passes with a disc harrow. A harrow does not invert the soil nearly as much. It's a much shallower and less invasive tillage practices practice. Then another one they observed, or another category or independent variable is disc harrowing. And then there's chisel plow, and then they did a no-till control. Okay. So those are the different practices that they sought to analyze. The tillage practices were performed in early September following a wheat crop and the wheat crop deposited only 2,800 pounds of organic matter per acre. The results are striking. The carbon released as CO2 during the 19 days following the moldboard plow, the moldboard plow and disc harrow and the disc harrow and the chisel plow and the land not tilled would account for 134%, 70%, 58%, 59%, 134%, 70%, 58%, 54%, and 
27% respectively of the carbon in the wheat crop residue left over in that year. All right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think maybe, maybe we can, uh, to help people put those numbers a bit clearer in their head, maybe we can just relate each one. Okay. Um, so, so the carbon released as carbon dioxide from each method, um, as one might kind of assume, of course, the deepest type of tillage, the mold board plow was 134% of the CO2 released. Is that correct? Is that what the statistic is saying? No, kind of. So the amount of, because, all right, so when you till land, right, you increase the amount of oxygen mm-hmm. surrounding the all of the the soil microbes and the carbon yeah. that's stored in the soil. And so it increased the metabolic rate of that microbial decomposition of organic matter, meaning more CO2 is released. Mm-hmm. And this, this is great for crop production sometimes because it also increases the rate of nitrogen mineralization for plant uptake. But it, it inexorably emits greenhouse gases. It reduces the amount of carbon in the soil. So when you mold board plow or t- heavy till, it releases more carbon dioxide in this research, 134% more carbon dioxide than the amount of carbon that was in that crop residue, right? Because when we're trying to sequester carbon, part of that is the crop residue gets broken down and Mm -hmm. stored in the soil. And that's how carbon enters the soil and is sequestered, stabilized. Well, when you till, you're releasing more of that carbon dioxide in in only 19 days following it than Mm. the entire amount of carbon that that crop residue will sequester in that soil in an entire year. Okay. Right? Does that make better sense? Yeah. And whereas on the other end of the spectrum, the land that was not tilled is only releasing 27%. In that in that 19 day period, 19 day period. Right. And so that 10 to one ratio. So we need 10 pounds of active organic matter, active crop residue for every one pound of carbon about stored in the soil. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that 27%, a quarter of the, all of the carbon or all the carbon in that crop residue of the wheat was emitted in 19 days. Mm -hmm. It's probably a pretty hot September and, um, yeah, it was just emitted, right? It's just normal metabolic function of the soil, right. of these microbes. They're just emitting, yeah. they're constantly chewing down carbon for they're their They're burping else. and farting too. They are. Mm-hmm. It's for self-preservation, right? But the, these plants need those microbes in order to gain nutrients that they can't mine themselves out of mm-hmm. the soil. What they found is that the equivalent of 3,800 pounds of organic matter in the form of carbon dioxide was lost in only 19 days following the mold board plow. So then going into the other sections of the, of the uh, tillage practices, even under conservation or reduced tillage practices, 1,600 pounds of organic matter was lost to the atmosphere in 19 days. And then under the no-till practice, only seven, 750 pounds of organic matter was lost per acre in that same time period. So the production of wheat for human consumption using conventional agriculture practices emits significantly more greenhouse gases than are sequestered of that from that crop this is an unsustainable process that requires outside industrial and chemical inputs in order to produce food for humans so if we want to talk about how cows are causing climate change why don't we include in the same conversation how crops are causing this climate change you are so reporting 
Right. And this is talking about food for us. This is food for us to eat, not yeah. growing particular grains for the cattle. This no. is our food. This is food that vegans, vegetarians, carnivores, all kinds of people will consume. Maybe not carnivores. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess if they only eat meat. <laughs> no. But the meat eats these things, certainly. Yeah. And we'll get to about we'll get to the discussion about the food feed ratio. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people out there are like, they're eating all of our food. Why don't we redivert all of the crops and grains that we're producing for cows to humans mm-hmm. and we'll reduce our environmental impact? We'll get to why maybe not all information is being uh, talked about out there mm-hmm. with respect to that. All right. So the target of carbon sequestration should not be to reduce the perceived greenhouse gas emissions from a particular segment of the carbon cycle. The target should be to show a net zero or net positive sink of carbon to our soil. That's the target. Looking at enteric fermentation in a vacuum is both dom- in both domestic and wild ruminant species is a tactic used to scare people into believing that livestock are causing climate change. Soil is such a dizzyingly dizzyingly complex ecosystem, much of which we still don't fully understand. And so the the goal of carbon sequestration should be to improve the fertility of our soil so both the farmer and consumer win. The farmer benefits from increased soil organic matter in their soils, which will subsequently decrease input costs and their reliance on fossil fuel-based fertilizers. Mm -hmm. It will improve the soil's water holding capacity and crop success through droughts. The food will be more nutrient-dense because organic matter significantly improves both the holding capacity but also the availability of nutrients from the mineralization of soil organic matter. Consumers benefit, of course, because more nutritious food means reduced disease outcomes. Mm -hmm. All right. We talked about soil and how things are mineralized. Talked about how crop production also contributes to greenhouse gases, how our current management practices of crops actually increase the amount of greenhouse gases than crops are able to sequester. Mm -hmm. And so now let's look at the breakdown of greenhouse gas emissions related to the livestock industry. Right. And this is like the hot topic of This is the debate. hot topic. Or maybe not even debate because a lot of the projected information isn't really a debate. They're just claiming that the livestock industry is the key contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, absolutely. So the EPA has committed to providing an annual report to the United Nations, essentially detailing an inventory on U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And this report includes both emission sources, but also emission sinks. So emission sinks are processes or ecosystems that draw down greenhouse gases. So in Chapter 5 of the EPA's 2022 Greenhouse Gas Emissions Inventory, they report that the livestock industry emits 9.4% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. We'll have the link to this so you guys can review this um, if you're sitting down and you can follow along. And so emissions of nitrous oxide by agricultural soil management practices. So these are through activities such as fertilizer application of inorganic fertilizer and other agricultural practices that increased nitrogen availability in the soil was the lo- by far the largest source, source of U.S. nitrous oxide emissions, accounting for 75% of all nitrous oxide emissions. Now, overall, this is was the largest source of emissions from the agricultural industry, adjusting for carbon equivalent, 
accounting for 49.2% of total sector emissions. So whenever you hear out there, I've seen statistics out there that, that claim that livestock are contributing 80% of all agriculture emissions. That's not true. The EPA has the report right there. You can review it and read it yourself. 49.2% of total sector emissions comes from the management of our agricultural soils. Irrelevant of livestock. Mm-hmm. Half of all emissions comes from the management of the production of crops. Whether it be for the, the consumption from livestock or of humans, it doesn't matter. But it's the production of crops that accounts for 50% of agricultural emissions. And I keep on repeating that because that's <laughs> very important statistics or data. So example of these practices include, like I said, inorganic nitrogen fertilizer production, excess use of soluble nitrogen fertilizers. Now, this one is huge because when you increase the amount of nitrogen, of, of um, soluble nitrogen onto land, it mineralizes carbon more significantly because there's more nitrogen for that bacterium, to that, for that microbe to consume. And then they need both carbon and nitrogen at the same time, right close next to each other in order for them to increase their metabolic rate when there's less nitrogen available there's less carbon uh mineralization or oxidation other practices um include tillage as we talked about earlier um it actually includes irrigation so the fossil fuels related to um, the movement of water across Mm -hmm. our lands it includes just fallow periods so what is a fallow period a fallow period is a time a section of time throughout the year or maybe over across multiple years where there's literally no plants growing on that soil. So there's no sequestration happening on that soil. There's only net emissions. And then even cover crops. So it's surprising to hear this, but cover crops actually increase greenhouse gas emissions. And then finally, there's um, the retention of crop residue on the land. So when there's more crop residue on the land, that's not being sequestered. And there's, so there's more opportunity for the, um, say, for example, the um, nitrogen in the above ground section of the plants. Um, when that plant dies, nitrogen is volatilized in the form of NH3 plus ammonia, I believe, out into the atmosphere. So there's volatization of these nitrogen and carbon sources back into the atmosphere. It's not being sequestered. And so these all contribute to these greenhouse gas emissions that account for 50% of all sector agricultural sector emissions. All right. Comparatively, the EPA reported that methane emissions from enteric fermentation and manure management represent 26.8% and 9.1% of total carbon or total methane emissions from anthropogenic. Oh my God. Let me repeat that. So methane emissions from enteric fermentation and manure management represent 26.8% and 9.1% of total methane emissions from anthropogenic activities, respectively, and 32.6% and 11% of agricultural sector emissions. By far, agricultural emissions related to crop production for human consumption emit more greenhouse gas emissions than from enteric fermentation and manure management in animal agriculture combined. I agree. 
These are large segments of agricultural emissions. However, manure management emissions are largely associated with beef and carry, beef and dairy CAFOs. Mm-hmm. These are the confined animal feeding operations that mismanage, misappropriate all that fertilizer and let it settle in lagoons and mm-hmm. these giant, literal small mountains of anaerobic shit. <laughs> shit, right? That stuff needs to be spread back onto our lands. Our livestock are the nutrient cycles and cyclers of these products. And when we split apart crop production from animal rearing, we get problems and emissions increase. Now, let's see. Can we just take a quick quick step back? You may have already said this, but what does EPA stand for again? What organization is that? Yeah, so that's the Environmental Protection Agency. Okay, so the government, government. governmental organization, yeah. the EPA. Yeah, we committed to, I think it was through the Paris Agreement, we committed to providing annual reports on greenhouse gas emissions and sinks to better understand where our emissions are coming from to better manage them. Mm-hmm. Great. I agree. That's, that's, a good, that's a good idea. But the, look at the data and don't use it to support your ideological thoughts. Can't just blame the poor cows. You can't blame the poor cows. It's also the, the management of production and the management of soils that mm-hmm. contributes to greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector. Now, somewhat ironically, the use of nitrogen-fixing plants, or did you want to continue? Okay. No, no, no. Somewhat okay. ironically, the use of nitrogen-fixing plants to increase nitrogen concentrations in the soil is actually contributing significantly to nitri- nitrous oxide emissions globally. Crazy, right? So I actually have a question about, so when you think about nitrogen versus carbon dioxide emissions, what in terms of climate change or what people view as global warming or greenhouse gases, I think the common conception of that is that CO2, carbon dioxide, is the big contributor. But you've been talking a lot also about nitrogen emissions what is that doing yeah in our atmosphere sure so nitrous oxide emissions um that molecule is very is quite persistent but it has a huge global warming potential meaning that that single um single molecule is 308 i think it's 308 is the conversion factor for co2 equivalent 308 more times it has 308 more times global warming potential than carbon dioxide. But it's not really something that we're seeing being spoken about. Well, it depends on who you're listening to. That's true. It definitely, because it, it's, it's well, it's well known in the scientific literature and it's well understood that nitrous oxide is a significant greenhouse gas. Okay. Um, contributor. Contributor for mm-hmm. sure. However, from my understanding of nitrous oxide in the atmosphere, which is not significant, I don't have a huge understanding of how the chemistry happens, but that eventually becomes ozone, I think, and nitrous uh, nitrogen gas. Okay. Eventually. But we are having, I think back in the day, we we're having some serious problems with the ozone and nitrous oxide. Hmm. And so, anyways. Well, I'll have to dig further into that. Sure. It can be a uh another sector of this yeah of this podcast but anyway so nitrogen fixing plants to increase nitrogen concentration in the soil also contribute to nitrous oxide emissions emissions yeah from the soil but 
So in organic agriculture, using nitrogen-fixing plants, both as nurse crops but also cover crops, is well-researched, and farmers understand the myriad of benefits that come from the use of nitrogen-fixing plants in our crop rotations. Specifically, this practice reduces farmers' dependence on the Haber-Bosch process. We talked about that in the podcast with Roger Moore about why this is an extremely inefficient use of fossil fuels for the production of fixed nitrogen. For, and not sustainable. Not sustainable. It uses fossil fuels. If you want to if you want to reduce fossil fuel dependency of the agricultural system, we need to switch over to the natural processes of fixing nitrogen. And this is it. Yeah. This, is the main, this is the main way we do it. And so the use of these produ- uh, products from the Haber-Bosch process is a significant contributor to... St- is a significant contributor to topsoil depletion and soil ecology disruption. For example, excess use of these fertilizers drive the mineralization of organic matter, causing unnecessary emissions of both nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide as it relates to conventional crop production. These organic fertilizers are also increasing the salinity in our soils, subsequently decreasing the water use efficiency of crop production, meaning to to realize the same unit output of crops, we need more water to produce it because there's more salts in the soil. Mm. As salts increase in the soil, it reduces the plant's ability to uptake water and various micronutrients and Mm -hmm. macronutrients. And so this means that, yeah, I just said that. So nitrogen is one of the main limiting factors when it comes to carbon sequestration and crop production. It's actually what drives primary production and all life on this planet. And this is why nature has developed these specific processes that allow life to tap into the almost infinite supply of nitrogen in our atmosphere. 78% of the atmosphere is nitrogen gas, but plants can't take up that gas. Mm -hmm. It needs to be fixed by the microbes. This natural nitrogen fixation process, however, emits enormous amounts of nitrous oxide gas into the atmosphere. In fact, natural terrestrial ecosystems, so that's forest, savanna, shrubland, etc., emit between 5.3 and 7.7 teragrams per year. What sort of units that? Teragram? Like teeny tiny? No, insane amount. Oh, gigantic. Teragram, let's see. Teragram to kilogram. Two tons, let's see. So 5.3, so... Computing. Computing. Uh, I'm not going to do that right now. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a large number, not a tiny number. Yeah, it's an insane amount. <clears throat> All right. So these natural ecosystems emit between 5.3 and 7.7 teragrams per year of nitrous oxide. This is comparable to all anthropogenic nitro- nitrous oxide emissions, including livestock, which is about at 6.9 teragrams per year. All anthropogenic nitrous oxide emissions is 6.9 teragrams per year. Total livestock nitrous oxide emissions are estimated to be 1.5 teragrams. And this estimate includes emissions from improper management of manure, which is 11% of total livestock emissions, according to, according to the EPA's 2022 report. This means that natural terrestrial ecosystems emit 4 times the amount of nitrous oxide gas into the atmosphere than all the livestock industry combined. Who's causing climate change? 
It has become popular opinion that forests act as carbon sinks and that the reforestation will significantly offset anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions. However, even some of the leading climate scientists are doubtful, at best with their estimates on the carbon sequestration rates of forests. In 2021, a large team of researchers from both climate research institutes and universities around the world published a paper called Global Maps of the 21st Century Forest Carbon Fluxes. In the introduction, they describe the challenges involved in monitoring and estimating the impacts forests have on greenhouse gas emissions. They are quoted, Our ability to distinguish anthropogenic from non-anthropogenic emissions is limited on the basis of direct observation, and most estimation methods offer few details about where and when and why forest fluxes occur. Yet understanding the magnitude, drivers, and spatial distribution of carbon fluxes across the world's forests and how they can be managed both to reduce emissions and enhance removals is increasingly important for climate policy and their various factors uh, developing nature-based solutions. In this paper, they attempt to to provide a better solution to monitoring and quantifying carbon fluxes from the forest, However, their estimation for a forest's carbon sequestration rates are far from significant and do not offer convincing data. They are quoted in the discussion. Again, quote, between 2001 and 2019, deforestation and other satellite observed forest disturbances resulted in global greenhouse gas emissions of 8.1 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. Over the same time period, gross carbon removals by forest ecosystems were between negative 15.6 plus or minus 49 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. That's the standard deviation. Taken together, the balance of these opposing fluxes, so that's gross emissions and gross removals, yields a global net carbon greenhouse forest sink of between or of negative 7.6 plus or minus 49 gigatons per year. They are quoted, the large uncertainties in global gross removals and net flux are almost entirely due to the extremely high uncertainty in removing factors from the IPCC guidelines applied to old secondary temperate forests outside the United States and Europe. Large uncertainties in the net flux estimates should be interpreted with caution. Standard deviations are very large related to the estimates, in part because net fluxes estimates reflect the sum of negative and positive terms, complicating the combination of their error terms. All right, let's break that down because that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, do you want me to keep going? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to say the main thing that stands out to me in hearing that quote is just that crazy, um, what do you call it? The, like the plus or minus. Yeah, the, st- the error, standard error, yeah, standard the deviation. Standard, standard deviation or the error margin in there is plus or minus 49 gigatons yeah like that seems insane it seems like that that scientific data is not even valid and that's what they say right here it should be interpreted with caution yeah right it's not it's not even it's really unconvincing data right it kind of seems to show that yes trees taking carbon dioxide and there's also carbon dioxide being emitted emitted (laughs) yeah because plants respire and the forest respires as you increase the amount of organic matter in the soil you increase the amount of greenhouse gas emissions coming from that soil Mm -hmm. right it's the net movement between these these pools that signify life so if you remember taking statistics 
chances are you remember that standard deviations and confidence intervals. Um, excuse me. You remember standard deviations and confidence intervals. So this data, therefore, is 99.7% confident that forest net carbon flux is between removing 154 gigatons of carbon dioxide or emitting 139 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. <laughs> Super convincing. <laughs> and so when you hear these arguments of arguments from proponents who wish to remove livestock from pasture and rewild that pasture by planting forests is entirely based on crude, inaccurate data of forest carbon fluxes. This is a 2021 study. Yeah. Unfortunately, the IPCC or IPCC, yeah, I did say that, and World Health Organization are using this data to influence global policy changes in the agricultural industry. Frightening. Super frightening. In another study titled Nitrogen Fixing Plants Increase Soil Nitrous Oxide Emissions, a meta-analysis, researchers found that nitrogen fixing trees increased nitrous oxide emissions 2.6 fold compared to the soil alone. In the discussion, they are quoted, Given that nitrogen-fixing trees stimulate soil nitrous oxide emissions significantly, we estimated the impact that reforestation with nitrogen-fixing trees could have on soil nitrous oxide emissions at the global scale. We focus on tropical and temperate forests due to the debate surrounding the suitability and calculations of tundra, boreal forests, deserts, and savanna and shrublands, and grasslands for reforestation. So to summarize, they are questioning the validity of greenhouse gas emission calculations with respect to land use changes, or colloquial, colloquially, oh, that's a hard one, termed rewilding of our agricultural lands and grasslands. So to summarize this whole section, if nitrous oxide emissions from cattle are bad, then nitrous oxide emissions from nitrogen-fixing bacteria must also be bad, right? But we know this isn't the case. So why are we, as a culture, so focused on just three very specific molecules involved in the nitrogen carbon cycles? Why are we basing policy off of the amount of molecules that both our natural terrestrial ecosystems as well as our agricultural systems emit? It's a great question, I thought. Yeah, like why? absolutely. Why are we basing policy change off of gross greenhouse gas emissions if natural ecosystems emit four times the amount of all the livestock industry combined? Couldn't tell you. I can't. I don't seems, know. Seems like there's missing data. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> okay. So one final part to this first um, argument, that being livestock will never be carbon neutral because they emit greenhouse gases, um, is diving into a paper that you thoroughly read called Grazed and Confused. Um, and hopefully this will provide the final bit of I guess insight into <laughs> the lack of lack of uh, I guess proper education around the argument that livestock can't be carbon neutral and therefore should be removed from the landscape. Yeah, so proponents of removing livestock or per, uh, opponents of the livestock industry they reference this paper all the time. So I read through this paper and it's. I don't even know. It's it's an opinion article, I would say, more so. Um, there's a lot of unscientific opinions in this article that were very hard to read. I mean, bless my wife. She had to sit there over the course of a week while I constantly interrupted her and just yelled at the paper. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I don't want to get too deep into this paper because we're going to do an entire separate podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breaking down this yeah. paper. I think another important it. thing to point out, though, an observation we made in this paper, and like Jay said, it's it's maybe not a super scientific paper. It's more of an opinion article. That's what we perceived it to be after reading it. But they do they did publish this as if it were a scientific piece. They have multiple scientific references. But what we observed after further investigation was that their scientific references were misused and biased. They yeah. would put a reference in for the sake of looking scientific and providing references but they would take like this one like a sentence one sentence from a tiny or from like a peer-reviewed paper that sounded like it suited their argument even though that paper they're referencing was the complete opposite argument yeah it was going against the whole argument of the grain confused paper yeah grazing confused paper is it was mind-blowing for sure yeah yeah it's a valid point just okay. another reason to ask more questions when you hear a hot topic of debate. Yeah. Don't accept what we're saying at face value. We are going to reference all of this. There's going to be dozens of references involved with this podcast, this series, actually, because we're going to make it a multi-part series. Mm-hmm. And so don't take, you know, critically think, yeah. you know, push back against us. See what you guys are thinking. See what you find. Mm-hmm. We have not read through every single paper. Yeah. But all the research we have re- reviewed so far is pointing to another way. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm not going to go into the detail in this paper, but just real quick, this paper argues that there are, quote, misleading conclusions are sometimes drawn about the sequestration effects of a particular land management regime. For example, sequestration in a grassland may be credited to a particular grazing regime when this is, in fact, the legacy effect, so to speak, of the land's much earlier conversion from arable to grassland, in such a case, a large part of the carbon would likely be accruing even under suboptimal grazing regimes, and even if there were no animals grazing on the grass at all. Okay, so to break this down a little bit and what they're trying to say, they're saying that people who make conclusions that cattle can sequester carbon um, in the soil or can help sequester carbon in the soil are saying that they actually probably don't because they're misconstruing the data because there was a land use change from arable crop production to grassland and that all of the carbon that they're seeing being sequestered was actually just from plants and plants being on the landscape, even without grazing. Well, this argument is nonsense for many reasons. But first, let's look at a long-term study done on semi-arid grasslands of the western United States. Excuse me. This one's titled, The Impact of Grazing Management on the Carbon and Nitrogen of of a Mixed Grassland Rangeland. So this was done by G.E. Schumann and his colleagues. And what they found that is that after 12 years of livestock grazing, so it's a large temporal scale, which was after 40 years of complete exclusion from fire and livestock on that same land, that this 12 years of livestock grazing resulted in a significant increase of carbon and nitrogen present in the root zone. So that's the uh, 0 to 30 centimeter of the soil profile. This section of the soil was 6,000 to 9,000 kilograms per hectare higher in carbon and 450 to 700 uh, kilograms per hectare of nitrogen higher in the grazed pasture versus the non-grazed pasture. 
Fascinating. Wait, what? <laughs> so this is that large temporal time scale that George Monbiot is asking for, which he claims there is, he was quoted as saying, what was it? Where is that? I don't know if you actually put that direct quote no. in here. He was quoted, there is not a single paper anywhere. There is nowhere on earth that is documented in a scientific or scientific literature that checks all of these boxes. One of these boxes being that carbon is sequestered in the soil by grazing livestock. Well, here's the paper. So why don't you review it, George? So in addition, Forbes became the dominant plant species in paddock exclosures where no ruminants graze for 12 years compared to the continuous light grazing and even the heavy grazing regimes where grasses remain dominant. So when they kept livestock off of the landscape, it switched to forbs, which forbs are like broadleaf plants mm-hmm. that are not grasses. Like dandelions, yeah. right? Would be Dock. part of that. Yep. Yep. Um, plenty of others. This research shows that in semi-arid grasslands of the West, Forbes became the dominant species in non-grazed grasslands. So let's break down and go into way more detail on this um, on this research. So the objective of this, of this research was to quantify the effects of 12 years of livestock grazing at three different stocking rates on plant biomass, so the amount of plants both above ground and below, below ground, the plant community composition, and the carbon and nitrogen balance of the mixed grass prairie. Previous research had not shown any clear relationship between species composition, root biomass, soil organic carbon, or soil nitrogen of grazed versus ungrazed grasslands. However, most of the research before this research, actually pretty much all of it, had very confounding variables, including significant soil variation variations within each study, meaning different types of soil, as well as inaccurate ele- evaluation of the soil profile. Some studies only looked at nitrogen, or carbon in the first five to 10 centimeters of the soil profile. Here, Schumann and his colleagues evaluated the soil composition down to 60 centimeters. So this is deep. Mm -hmm. This is a great study too, when you see something that they do 12 years of investigation. It's not just someone's opinion that rotational grazing is the way to go, or that cow should be off the landscape, or whatever other argument. Like there's 12 years of data backing this study. Right. Exactly. So let's look into the methods because when you evaluate research, it needs to be falsifiable for sure. But the methods for data uh, evaluation and, um, oh my God, what's the word? Like bringing in the data evaluation, I guess, best word. Sure. Yeah, acquisition. acquisition. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Um, it needs to be sound, right? There, there needs to be little confounds. It needs to yeah. be sound data or sound methods. So, all right. So this research took place um, not far out, of, far out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. The climate is temperate and semi-arid with 127 annual frost-free days and about 380 millimeters of rain. The dominant soil type was a sandy loam and the vegetation was actually predominantly grass. So of the of the grass, 55% was cool season species. So that's wheat grass uh, and needle and thread. You should look up it up. It's uh, beautiful grass. And then there's 23% of the grass was warm season, which was dominated by blue grama. And there was less than 2% of the plant species composition was legumes. 
and then the rest of the species was forbs, sedges, and half shrubs. Uh, again, this, uh, this area for research had not been grazed by domestic livestock for 40 years. So and there's, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. So their emphasis on that domestic livestock, are they saying that there could have been and likely were other, um, ruminants on the landscape that Very being likely. deer or elk, elk or yeah. whatever just natural species Antelope. wandering through mm-hmm. yeah okay at very low stocking rates out there yeah. i'm sure though all right so they broke it down into three grazing treatments so the first one is called ex and we'll be referencing this to um, reduce complexity um, that's the non-graze exclosure so no animals were grazing on the ex group then there's the CL group, and that stands for continuously light grazing. And the stocking rate here was 0.16 to 0.23 steers per hectare. That needs to be adjusted for the livestock units, but that's a very low stocking rate. Um, and then there's the CH, which is which is continuous heavy grazing, which was uh, 0.56 steers per hectare on average. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the CL treatment, so the continuous light grazing treatment, Stocking rate is 35% below the NRCS recommended stocking rate. Whereas in the CH group, the continuous heavy grazing treatment was 33% higher than the recommended stocking rate. The NRCS is a nat- uh, the natural resources, uh, wow, the natural resources conservation. Why am I forgetting this right now? We got a grant from them. <laughs> natural resources conservation service. Thank you. Jesus. <laughs> Bye, Dad. Um, yeah, so the, the high treatment was 50% above, or excuse me, the continuously high grazing treatment utilized 50% of the annual above ground biomass production, meaning they ate half of all of the grass that was produced in that given year. Okay. I won't get into the other details to keep this along, but the results, so compared to the CL treatment, the CH treatment shifted plant compositions of the grassland. Western wheatgrass declined from 45% to 21%, and blue grama increased from 17% to 27%. Peak standing crop is the maximum amount of biomass found on the land throughout the year. So peak standing crop of the CH group was significantly less than the CL and exclosure groups. But the peak standing crop of the continuous light grazing and the exclusion group were similar. And that exclusion group, again, to clarify, was no animals on it. Correct. No no cattle grazing. No wild ruminants either. Okay. Interestingly, the dominant species under the continuously light grazing group, the CL group, was western wheatgrass, whereas forbs became the dominant species under the ex ex treatment that's fascinating right Mm -hmm. now this doesn't mean this always happens but this happened in this research in this particular ecological region at this time period so what did how did the soil respond to these grazing treatments so total carbon and nitrogen in the top 30 centimeters of the soil was significantly lower in the exclosure treatment than compared to either grazing treatment This lower mass of carbon and nitrogen was due to less surface soil. There's literally less soil there and to lower bulk density. Bulk density just means, just has to do with the amount of mass per unit volume. Mm -hmm. Total carbon 
of the 30 centimeter solar horizon was comparable under both grazing treatments. But the total nitrogen was significantly higher under the continuous light grazing versus the CH, continuous heavy grazing treatment. Okay. Mm. So is this saying that in this study, the land that was grazed on by cattle actually benefited the soil? It built up the soil (laughs) and created more space for carbon and nitrogen to be sequestered? Well, as far as space goes, I don't know if it created more space, but it it sequestered more carbon through mm. the process. But they said there was less surface soil in the non-grazed area. Correct. So that leads me to think that more surface soil was built up over the 12 years that the animals grazed correct. there? Okay. Yep, correct. Okay. So why... All right, we'll get to the discussion about that one. All right, so discussion. So after 12 years of grazing, the soil was between six to 9,000 kilograms per hectare higher in carbon and 450 to 700 kilograms higher in nitrogen in both grazed treatments compared to the exclosure treatment group. The authors claim that the increased CNN was due to the redistribution of carbon and nitrogen within the plant soil systems. Increases in the carbon and nitrogen cycling rates between system components and reduced losses. All right. So the CH treatment, which was 133% above the NRCS recommended stocking rate, was expected in this study to negatively affect soil carbon because grasses have been shown to physiologically respond to heavy grazing by allocating more carbon to new leaf growth while decreasing carbon to root growth. However, This was not the case, and soil carbon increased from heavy grazing. This research showed that heavy grazing shifted the plant community to more warm-season grasses. Well, without getting into too much detail, warm-season grasses tend to be a classification of plants called C4 plants, not the explosive, which in this case was blue grama. And cool-season grasses tend to be C3 plants, which is in this one was western wheatgrass and needle and thread. C4 plants generally actually have thicker root systems and rely more heavily on arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, or AMF for short, for the acquisition of soil nutrients in drier soils. This is consistent with other research that has shown increased manure deposition on grasslands increases AMF populations in the soil because AMF populations in the soil support specific plant communities or guilds of plants. This can significantly affect the plant populations that we see today in in this particular land. Previous research has shown that blue grama grass partitions more energy and fixed carbon to its roots than to its leaves. This is the warm season C4 plants. In addition, other research has shown that grazing stimulates increased above ground phytomass production which also increases uh, tillering. Remember what tillering is? Um, is it, it's like with the worms coming up and moving the soil, making space? No. Oh. So, you know, in quack grass, how um, in these perennial grasses, they will yeah, send right, out shoots. Rhizomes. Yeah, or they're the... kind of like rhizomes, but not, not really. They... Um, they send out shoots underground, and sometimes those shoots will will travel laterally 
feet before coming up mm. out of the soil and it's like a daughter plant so like you know how strawberries yeah. above ground they have daughter plants well it's kind of like a daughter plant underground mm. for so it increased the amount of moving away from that particular space mm. and trying to increase their daughters elsewhere you know a few feet away right. it also increases rhizome production and even stimulates root respiration and root exudation rates so Heavy grazing increases the amount that roots respire. It increases their metabolic activity. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense if you really think about it. Those plants are being chewed down more frequently, ah! maybe lower. Therefore, they're going to start pushing more energy to try to regrow that plant mm-hmm. to create more um, more surface area for photosynthesis to then grow even bigger. Exactly. That's exactly right. And roots, root exudation rates, so when they increase the amount of sugars that they slough off or exude out of their um, their roots, this is for, uh, in exchange for, um, say, nitrogen or calcium or phosphorus, etc., they're exchanging what they produce with what microbes can mineralize. And so they're increasing that exchange. Okay, so in the study, the measured nitrogen concentration in the heavy grazing treatment was significantly lower than in the light grazing treatment. Carbon loss from grazing can easily be replaced by increased photosynthetic rates, but nitrogen loss from the system, the plant soil system, has to be, has to be replaced by nitrogen fixation if you're not fertilizing, mm-hmm. right? Since less than 2% of the plant community was leguminous plants, nitrogen fixation rates were low. So there was less nitrogen in the soil. That makes sense. In the exclusure, exclosure treatment, 72% of the above ground phytomass was in the form of dead standing and litter. So at the end of the year, nothing has grazed all of that, uh, all of the plant material, the residue that's left over. And so it's just standing there out in the open air. And mm-hmm. as you remember, when plants die, they volatilize nitrogen out of their above ground phytomass and emit greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. You gonna say something? No, no. Okay. So previous research has found significantly lower soil N nitrogen in non-grazed versus grazed grassland. In addition, immobilization of carbon and nitrogen in above ground phytomass decreases nutrient cycling between the plant and soil system, right? When cows come in and consume all that above-ground phytomass, they are recycling that into manure, which is more closely related to soil. Mm-hmm. It can be decomposed much more readily. Yeah. And so in this exclosure group, they had 275 to 675 kilograms per hectare more carbon and 15 to 25 kilograms per hectare more nitrogen immobilized in that above-ground dead-standing plant matter compared to both grazing treatments. However, this is a small percentage of the total CNN deficit found in the soil from the exclosure group. But stretched over 12 years, it has led to significant lost opportunity for nutrient cycling in the plant-soil system. Mm. You need cattle to recycle nutrients. Mm-hmm. You need livestock and plant or animals to recycle the nutrients in soils. Mm-hmm. They've been around for 50 million years. Removing livestock from... This is, the, uh, this is a quote from the end of their discussion. 
uh, Schumann and his colleagues. And they are quoted by saying, removing livestock from these lands could over the long term reduce soil carbon and nitrogen cycling and potentially the productivity of the systems. These ecosystems developed under grazing, the fact that soil resources are enhanced with grazing suggests that grazing is an important part of ensuring long-term sustainability of these grassland systems, end quote. Thank you, Schumann, for your research. Now, this is just one of his papers uh, and his research. He has a whole couple decades worth of research into soil and carbon balances in the in grasslands. So mm-hmm. well done. Thank you for yeah, your work. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's dive into the, I guess this would be the feed food debate. Oh, yeah. So the talk about how uh, portion, a large, the argument, let's go back to the argument point. That being a large portion of human edible crops are grown to provide feed for livestock. It's a misappropriation of food as it takes food out of the mouths of humans. Yeah. Quote, we should replace grazing land for the production of human food on that land. And so <laughs> the first thing that always comes to my mind in this from this argument and I maybe in your scientific research here you go into this but the thing is not all land is capable of being used to grow food for humans yet cattle can graze on it and not all food that is grown for I got yeah. lost in my own thoughts, but um, food that is grown for humans is grown for humans. Even uh, parts of our food that humans wouldn't eat could it then be redistributed to cattle. Cattle, correct. And so it's not just it's not just black and white. It's it's not just all food is grown for cattle or land is being used up to raise cattle instead of growing vegetables Mm -hmm. that land can't always be used to produce crops for humans no arable land is defined as land that can be essentially cultivated for crop production and there's only a certain amount of arable land out there and we've been destroying it through crop production over the past hundred years and most land is not suitable for or is not arable land, right? It's um, extremely undulating hills that are too steep for crop production. It's land that is too basic, right? Too high in the pH for crop production. It's land that it may be too high in salts. It's land that's too arid that can that doesn't have enough water around mm-hmm. for us to even grow food on. It's mountainsides. It's tundra. It's it's areas that literally are just too cold for mm-hmm. crop production, right? So there's huge swaths of land that then are used for livestock production on the grassland. They are converting non-human edible feed into human edible food in the form of meat, dairy, eggs, etc. So beef production has regularly been criticized for its high consumption of grain that would otherwise be consumed by humans, as we just said. Studies have cited that between... 6 and 20 kilograms of grain is required per kilogram of beef produced. This upper range, however, is an estimate based on feedlot operations, which only account for about 7 to 13% of global beef production. So contrary, contrary to what most people believe, most livestock cattle production is actually not in the form of CAFOs. Mm-hmm. 7 to 13% of global beef production is feedlot operations. 
It does not apply to the other 87 to 93% of global beef production and therefore cannot be used as a basis to calculate the feed conversion ratio of beef. So what is the feed conversion ratio? It's the amount of dry matter of feed it, it takes to produce one kilogram of beef in the form of food. Mm-hmm. So global demand for feed or for meat and milk is expected to increase 57% and 48% respectively between the years 2005 and 2050. So we're already there. Almost halfway. Almost halfway. Contrary to popular belief, most of the livestock sector's growth in the past decade was in the form of large-scale monogastric farms, meaning chickens, pigs, etc. It's not that we're growing more beef at all. In fact, this will become actually really important when when we really talk about the feed food ratio of ruminants versus monogastric livestock. Just a refresher, monogastrics are the ones with one chamber, so they don't ruminate, they don't feed or enterically ferment and produce methane. Because of this expected large increase in demand, there will be a major impact on our agricultural systems and land use. Fair enough. Therefore, we need better data to inform improved decision-making policies and to inform the consumer what they're actually contributing to. Do you want to try and break down the feed? Uh, well, I just actually had a thought um, that I think we missed early on, but I think now's a good time to bring this in. So contrary to popular belief, the U.S. cattle industry isn't actually rapidly expanding in size, correct? No, The industry not. has actually seen a steady decline in the total population both cows and calves since the mid 1970s correct yeah i think it's been about a four percent decrease since then mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah so it's not like a booming industry here the booming livestock industry is in is in areas like uh brazil and the amazon and uh the grassland areas um to the east and i think northeast of the amazon yeah i agree we shouldn't be cutting down the rainforest to grow to raise cattle mm-hmm. why would we do that that's crazy why do we import cattle when we can grow it right here in the United States? Raising <laughs> that right here in the... is a big question. That's a big question. Absolutely. And that's what uh, the people at White Oak Pastures talks a, talks a lot about. Mm-hmm. Why are we importing this this beef and labeling it as a product of the USA? Mm-hmm. That's topic for another conversation. For but sure. Anyway, so hopping back into the, the feed food ratios, that's where we're heading. Um, so feed, there's two classifications of feed when we're dealing with livestock, there's human edible feeds, so things like grain, soy, banana, cassava, mm-hmm. and there's human non-edible feed, so things that we cannot and would not eat. Grass, crop residue, fodder. What's fodder beet again? It's like, um, it's a it's a cultivar of beet that we grow for feed. For, okay. Like, we wouldn't want to eat those. They're yeah. like... 20 pounds. Okay. <laughs> uh, so sometimes uh, the feed's made up uh, made up of entirely human edible foods. However, in some feeds, only a portion of that feed can be considered as edible. Uh, the economic fraction allocation, or the EFA, is used to identify which part of the product is the main driver of land use. If the EFA is greater than 66%, then we can consider that feed material to be in direct competition with human food production. Yeah. So, for example, <clears throat> so like um, soybean production. Um, so, eh, we'll get that. We'll get into that later. It'll become better. Uh, explained later in the podcast. 
You can continue. Yeah. So the ability for various livestock production systems to convert feed into food for humans is measured by this ratio um, called the feed conversion ratio. I can't remember if I had said that before or not. We did. but Uh, (laughs) So this is calculated by measuring the quantity of feed per unit output of the product, meat, milk, eggs. It's represented as uh, kilograms... Dry, dry matter. Dry matter intake divided by the kilograms of animal product. However, this doesn't take into account the amount of human edible protein found in the food output. So the researchers define FCR1 as the kilograms of dry matter. Is that what you said that mm-hmm. is? Um, intake divided by the kilograms of protein product. Correct. So that is how much dry matter intake does it take to produce one unit output of protein? So if it takes 10 kilograms of dry matter to produce one kilogram of protein in the form of beef or eggs, for example, then it's a 10 to 1 feed conversion ratio. However, this FCR1 is not specific to what percentage of edible feed versus non-edible feed was consumed by the livestock to produce that kilogram of protein product. It just lumps all this data together. It skews the feed conversion ratio to make it seem like cows are eating all of our food and they are not incredible and that they are incredibly inefficient at in converting feed into human food. International policy and leadership is now influenced by these kinds of skewed data and is used to make decisions on how to manage climate change. This is what you hear from the World Health Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So there's another aspect of this FCR the researchers um, in this paper sought to clarify. And this paper is was done by Anne Motet and her colleagues. I think it was done in 2008. It's right here. I'll, I'll grab it. Is that the one you have printed? No, it's this one right here. I can hand it to you if you want to take a look at it. 2018? Oh, 2017. Okay. And this one's called... Oops. This one's called Livestock on Our Plates or Eating at Our Table, a new analysis of the feed-food debate, which is a great... <laughs> Great article title. It's done by Anne Motet and some of her colleagues. And um, Anne Motet is actually part of the FAO, which is great. Wait, what's the FAO again? The Food and Agricultural Organization. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's another aspect. Um, of the FCR, the food conversion ratio that these researchers sought to clarify. So, and this is when I, this is why I wanted to wait. In the soybean industry, 85% of the world's soybean are processed into non-edible soybean cakes, which are made up of 30% protein, 25% fat, and about 27% carbohydrates. And it's also made into soybean, soybean oil, which is human edible. Of this 85%, virtually all of the cakes are further processed into livestock feed, 97%. So, soybean cakes should be considered a non-edible feed, but because they are derived from the production of human edible soybean oil, these cakes are classified as the main driver of soybean production because that EFA is above 68% or 66%. Mm -hmm. It's 72%. So, they are just lumping it all together. 
they're like they're saying like well because cattle are eating all this non-edible soybean cakes mm-hmm. but and that's actually the main driver of the production of this classification of food that means that this is the main driver of that agricultural system well that's fucking bullshit yeah that's crazy it's crazy it's, right it's food that we would otherwise not com- eat. compost if we're lucky but <laughs> likely it would just be thrown into a landfill so that people can eat their yeah. soy oil yeah or their beyond burger yeah <laughs> yeah don't get me started right so that's crazy <laughs> so then this has to be considered as the main driver of agricultural production and is classified as direct competition with human edible food Therefore, soybean production is classified as all human edible food, even though most of it's used for livestock production. This is the most classic case of you can't have your cake and eat it too. (laughs) So the researchers added a third feed conversion ratio, which is FCR3. And this ratio is considering the amount of human feed plus soybean cakes per kilogram of protein output. This will make more sense in a bit. This seeks to provide a more accurate data point. And so their estimates of feed rations are based on the um, GLEAM model, which is the Global Livestock and Environmental Assessment model. It's a great model to use. Most people don't have too many problems with it. But this model was developed to represent biological and physical processes and activities throughout the livestock supply chain with respect to spatial patterns. So across space. It's modeled through a life cycle assessment approach so that you've probably heard of this in LCA or life cycle assessment approach of an animal product. And you can actually find a full description of the model in a paper called Tackling Climate Change Through Livestock on the FAO website. It's a 140 page document. So go ahead, read through it if you want. This is what it takes. So globally, the livestock sector ingested 6 billion tons of feed. That's a lot. 46% of the feed was in the form of grass and leaves, and 19% of the feed was in the form of crop residue after harvest. Globally, only 14% of the global feed ration was human edible feed materials. They're not eating all of our food. Globally, only 14% of the feed ration was human edible feed materials. Of this feed, only 13% was human edible grains. This portion of feed for cows represents 32% of global grain production, for sure. I'm not disagreeing with that. That's, that's the data point that people are cherry-picking mm-hmm. out of this research. They're saying, well, they're eating a third of all the human food. No, they're not. No, they're not. Grain represents only 1.8% of total feed for the livestock sector globally. It's a lot less than 30%. A lot less than 30%. <laughs> Specifically to grazing and mixed systems, 90% of their feed is in the form of roughage. So that's leaves, grasses, silage, and crop residue. Materials that are inedible to humans. You can find more detailed information in the supplementary section of this paper. Of this paper. Uh, the link will be provided in the show notes. This is where, again, people are cherry-picking the data to make an argument that cows need to be removed from our agricultural lands. They are not eating all of our food. They're eating one point. Their total feed is 1.8%. Their total grain feed is Mm -hmm. 1.8%. That leaves plenty of grain for humans. Yeah, plenty. It's a different story when we look at feedlots. Um, So feedlots, they don't eat nearly as much roughage um, than the amount of grains. So feedlot systems are almost exclusively used to fatten up young cattle Mm -hmm. once they've been weaned from their mothers. Contrary to popular belief, almost all cows 
are raised on grass, especially during the year their young months, from like zero to around six months, I believe it is. And then they start to get sold off to feedlots. So grains accounts for 72% of dry matter intake in feedlot systems in OECD countries. Um, I won't get into what that is, but it's just essentially more developed countries, first world countries. Mm -hmm. So this is where the vast majority of human edible feed is fed to cattle. This, coupled with animal welfare problems and mismanagement of the manure, causes significant issues for sustainable livestock production. We are not arguing that feedlots are the way of the future for livestock production. We are arguing that they are fit and are part of the agricultural system and the landscape that we use to produce food. Mm -hmm. But that they may not be using the best practices for long-term sustainability of that land that they stand on. Correct. Yeah, we've separated crop production from animal production, and we shouldn't be doing that. So, comparatively, monogastric animals can only digest simple carbs, like us, and therefore they can't consume large amounts of roughage. And therefore, these systems use significantly larger quantities of grains and agricultural byproducts that are edible to humans. Humans can eat them. For example, in industrial boiler and layer systems and in pig production, grains contribute more than 50% of total intake compared to only 1.8% of total intake by cattle. Ooh. Excuse me. Were you farting too? Farting. <laughs> <laughs> farting on air. Overall, it's true that the feed conversion ratio of monogastric systems, especially of industrial layer in pigs, is lower than in ruminant production systems, meaning that fewer kilograms of feed are re required to produce one kilogram of protein in the form of animal products. Of course, these FCRs are highly dependent on geographical location and production sophistication. For example, in, non, uh, in third world countries, essentially, grazing cattle productions, FCR is 195 kilograms of dry matter per kilogram of protein production. And small ruminants, FCR is even higher at 221 kilograms of dry matter per kilogram of protein product. Small ruminants are like, um, like uh, sheep and goats, etc., so if one does not look into the feed quality and the portion of feed that would otherwise be suitable for human consumption, one would conclude that monogastrics are simply better at converting feed into edible food for us. However, when we take a look at the conversion ratio as it relates to human edible protein allocation allocated to animal production, we realize that ruminant systems are significantly more efficient at converting non-edible materials into human edible protein sources. The adjusted FCR2 is the following. So the FCR of grazing cattle is 1.6 kilograms of dry matter per one kilogram of protein product output. Small ruminants is 0.4 and layers is 15. So 10 times the amount. They, you know, monogastrics can't convert non-edible food into human edible food mm -hmm. ruminants can yeah right and that's what they do that's what they've evolved to do not for our sake but for their own sake mm -hmm. because it opens up a whole new niche ruminants are a whole new niche on the way to convert non-edible food that other animals can't eat into food that they can eat and mm -hmm. acquire energy from them for small ruminant systems, it actually takes fewer kilograms of human edible feed to produce one kilogram of protein. Meaning, how crazy is that, right? 
it takes less energy or less weight, less mass of food to produce one kilogram of protein mm-hmm. or of unit output. Do we want to go even more into this? I don't know if we need to go much further into that. Maybe just like <clears throat> summarizing the main point that is being made. Yeah. The point is being made is that people think that that cattle are eating all of our food and not giving us much in return. They are mm-hmm. really poor at converting food in or feed into food. No, monogastrics are, and they're the ones chewing up all of our feed. Mm-hmm. That 30% of of feed that is grown, like grains, human edible food that is grown for the livestock industry, a lot of it's for monogastrics. Yeah. Not for cattle. Yeah. Even, yeah. I mean, cattle certainly are being fed this this stuff, but... Anyways. Right. So why aren't people picking on monogastric systems? Why are they picking on cattle? Is it because people who raise cattle have to own large swaths of land? Do people want to take those people off the landscape? Who is trying to change the hands of land ownership? Right. Yeah, land ownership and land use. Right. Because that's sovereignty. Owning land is sovereignty. Okay, let's talk about vegans. <laughs> All right, so our last and final argument that we wanted to fight against today is the argument that if we switch to a plant-based vegan diet, we can take huge amounts of land out of production and rewild those lands, further sequestering carbon. Yeah. So let me just pull this paper here. One sec. Well, I'll start by reading out this quote that you, uh, is this the paper you're pulling up? Mm -hmm. All right. So read this quote here. Um, Jay will give you the paper name once he pulls that up here. So if everyone shifted to a plant-based diet, we would reduce global land use for agriculture by 75%. This large reduction of agricultural land use would be possible thanks to a reduction in land used for grazing and a smaller need for land to grow crops. If the world adopted a plant-based diet, we would reduce global agriculture land use from four to one billion hectares. It's even hard to just read that out loud because it's not very well written. But point being, they're just even in reading this at a first glance, they're trying to make the point that if people were were vegans, vegetarians, plant-based diets, that not as much land would need to be used to grow food because they're making the assumption that most land is currently being used to grow food to feed cows. Well, and if they do say most, it's just not true. It's 33%. Right. And right. they didn't use the word most. That's just yeah. my yeah, yeah, yeah. my take on their stance here. Yeah. But <laughs> 4 billion to 1 billion hectares, you're going to reduce agricultural land use by 75%. Well, and so what are they, maybe we'll get into this. I don't know what you uh, discovered here, but like, what are they then arguing humans are going to eat? Um, Plants. Plants still take a lot of land to grow, especially if you want to grow plants that provide beneficial nutrients that humans need to survive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can have a vegan diet if you supplement 
and if you eat a di- very diverse diet for sure mm-hmm. but i'm also haven't really heavily got involved in the human nutrition aspect mm-hmm. side of this so i'm not going to speak much about yeah. that i'm more focused on these claims that are made by agricultural production or how we could change the amount of land used for agricultural production because i understand agricultural production and i know what it would take to grow that many crops for human consumption if we were to take all land use uh, all livestock land use out of production mm-hmm. so the first assumption made in the is that most of the agricultural land currently used for livestock production is suitable for crop production according to the fao in 2018 there is 4.13 billion hectares of land used for agriculture about 1.25 billion hectares is used for crop production while the other 2.89 billion hectares is pasture and wild grasslands so if we assume that all arable land has similar production efficiencies, which is not a good assumption, um, if we assume that all of the arable land has similar production efficiencies of the current land allocated to producing human edible crops, then this is true. This is, this is true. We could reduce the amount of land use by switching just to a vegan diet. That's not what I'm arguing. It would be possible to reduce that. However, it's clear that Hannah and others who who purport this don't fully understand what agricultural management practices would have to be adopted if we take animals out of these systems. Right. They're that, not. That begins to mean more external uh, imports brought in just to make sure your plants have what they need to yeah. grow. Yeah. And so it would also mean that we would have to increase our dependency of fossil fuel intensive based fertilizers, especially nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Because if we didn't use inorganic nitrogen, we would have to then rely on nitrogen fixation for nitrogen production needs or nitrogen crop needs. Mm-hmm. So, Anne Motet, she was the one who and her colleagues who wrote the livestock on our plates or eating at our table found that a total of 685 million hectares of grassland would be converted to cropland. Um, This leaves 2.2 billion um, hectares of pasture and grassland unsuitable for crop production. So there's about 680 million hectares of grassland that could be converted to cropland today, or at least in 2018. Um, but most of the remaining um, acreage, all the rest of that acreage, 2.2 billion hectares would not be suitable for crop production and proportionally could provide 14% of all calories and 25% of all protein globally. (laughs) So you're going to cut a quarter of protein production out of the agricultural industry. All right. Well, we'll talk about that later. Furthermore, livestock production employs about 1.3 billion people globally. So you're going to take all of those people. Right. In addition, half of the world's 900 million poorest people depend on livestock for their livelihoods. Literally, they would die if they didn't have livestock. And there's many, many people interviewed who talk about this. Environmentally, environmental sustainability aside, how would we shift 1.3 billion jobs to different sectors of the economy? Sure, some percentage of these folks could be shipped to producing crops on arable land, but geospatial and geopolitical limitations would inhibit this magnitude of labor sector shift. 
Simply put, the vast majority of land currently used for production of livestock is non-arable. This means that most of the 450 million people, the 450 million poorest people across the world currently relying on livestock for income would have to emigrate across their country or immigrate to other regions that would otherwise have arable land that could employ these people. Mm -hmm. With very few resources already, this level of human migration would be difficult, if not impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just goes right back to what we were discussing earlier about these arguments not being fully thought out and sharing all sides because not all land that has animals on it currently, animals that are being raised for food, for human health, for human consumption, for protein intake, not all that land can be used to grow crops anyway. No, no, it's impossible. So back to the the Hannah Ritchie's article on how crop production has become more efficient uh, or she remarks on how crop production has become more efficient since the 1990s. It's definitely true. She's not wrong there. Crop production efficiencies have tripled since just after World War II, largely due to increases in crop output per acre, which was averaged at a 1.5% increase per year. Intensified agriculture uses high-yielding but increasingly homogeneous crop varieties, which are usually grown in expansive monocultures and require high levels of irrigation, chemical fertilizer, herbicides, and pesticide inputs. Unintended results of agricultural intensification include unacceptable unacceptable levels of greenhouse gas emissions, disrupting, uh, or excuse me, and disruptions to the global nitrogen and phosphorus cycles, and biodiversity loss. So you want to take livestock off of production, but then increase intensified crop production, which has shown huge land degradation across the planet Mm -hmm. like that's that's your answer right yeah and if you think of it from like a calorie to calorie perspective or like protein perspective to be able to produce that level of um, nourishment for humans that a livestock operation can and instead try to produce that from plants like that's just not happening it's not happening sure we can grow beans lentils other legumes but it's still not the same level of protein intake or fat yeah i'm not sure i mean you know plants produce a ton of protein and decent amount of fat certainly a lot of carbohydrates like i'm not i'm not arguing that plants aren't plants contribute more to protein intake than livestock production. I think it's like it's 75% of protein is from comes from plants about, I mean, there's different estimates, and then 25% is from livestock. Mm. So for sure, but we're talking about there's not enough arable land. Mm-hmm. So then we need to talk about how you're going to fertilize this land if you're taking animals off of the landscape. Right, which cool. means there's no natural manure to add back in Mm -hmm. yeah because the amount of nitrogen that is is taken into the cow in the form of feed is negligible virtually all of the nitrogen that goes through the cow is redeposited onto the soil yeah there's some volatilization of nitrogen that goes into the atmosphere but most in the scientific literature they equate the amount of nitrogen input in the form of food 
is the amount of nitrogen output in the form of manure and urine. Mm. The amount of nitrogen that stays in that cow is so negligible it's considered zero Mm. in the literature. Right? So they're nitrogen cyclers. But how would we... How would we produce enough nitrogen naturally through nitrogen fixation in order to support such a large uh, such a large um, um, land use for crop production so let's say we shift all conventional crop production to organic systems we take out the Haber Bosch process we don't use any inorganic nitrogen fertilizer as an input okay So when it comes to fertilizer inputs in organic agriculture, the vast majority of plant nutritional requirements come from animal manures and urine. If we were to take all domestic livestock out of our organic crop livestock production systems, then we would have to rely on cover crops as our main supply of fertility for our food supply. So in a 2015 study out of Germany, researchers Christopher Poplow and Axel Dawn discussed the carbon sequestration abilities of cover crops. Although conservational and no-till agricultural systems have been shown to decrease the rate of carbon loss from soil, the main management practice for building soil organic carbon is to increase inputs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Excluding animal manure and sewage sludge inputs, the only other way to add carbon to the soil is through the use of plants. Cover crops can provide many benefits to our agricultural cropping systems. They have been shown to increase soil biodiversity, reduce nutrient leaching, reduce erosion and increase water use efficiency, meaning it takes less water to produce the same amount of crops Mm -hmm. per unit acre of land. The researchers claim, however, that, quote, cover crops also named intercrops or catch crops, and let me know if you want me to stop and... No, you're good. Keep going. Are crops that replace bare fallow lands during winter period and are plowed under as green manure before sowing of the next crop. In contrast to the introduction of arable lay rotations or periodic green fallows, cover crops do not necessarily reduce the amount of agricultural products that can be harvested from that land. Furthermore, their cultivation does not exclude the possibility of organic manure applications. They just replace the annual fallow period. The intention of this individual or these researchers weren't to say, how do I put this? Their intention wasn't to to talk about livestock. They were just talking about cover crops and how they can improve the fallow periods that would otherwise um, be realized during winter, right? So a fallow period is when there's no plants growing on that soil. So say at the end of a wheat crop harvest in September, all of the crop residues plowed under, tons of of carbon dioxide lost from plowing but then over the entire winter period nothing is alive right. in that soil as far as plants go but i have a lot i have a lot of problems with this statement um cash crop cover crop rotation so your cash crop is your wheat your cover crop would be say rye mm-hmm. um in the fall and winter those rotations schedules are largely dependent on geographical location mean annual growing days, and nutritional requirements of the following cash crop. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. Carry on. So let's go back to that 200 bushel corn crop. So that 200 bushel corn crop requires 200 to 250 pounds of acre of nitrogen, uh, uh, pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. 
So depending on the geographical location, a winter leguminous cover crop will not be able to fix enough nitrogen for the following year's corn crop. It would require a full year of cover crop production in order to maximize nitrogen fixation rates of the leguminous cover crops aimed to provide the necessary quantities of nitrogen for that corn crop. Mm. Making sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's sounding like it would take a really long time to yield a crop if done properly with your cover crop. Yeah. If you weren't to use fossil face, yeah. fossil face, fossil based, um, oh my God, I'm getting tired. Fossil fuel based fertilizers. Yeah. That means you would have to take an entire, that, that one acre of land you would have to take out of production the following year right. if you wanted to then increase the amount of nitrogen inputs from nitrogen-fixing cover crops, mm-hmm. leguminous cover crops. Yeah. So as you remember, each percent of soil organic matter will release 10 to 20 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. According to SARE, which is the Sustainable Agricultural Research and Education Institution, U.S. crop lands average about 2.8% of soil organic matter. Therefore, only 28 to 56 per, uh, pounds of nitrogen per acre is released each year from our soils. This leaves, leaves an estimated nitrogen deficit of 144 to 172 pounds per acre of nitrogen. And this estimate is on the low end. How will a winter cover crop be able to offset this substantial nitrogen deficit for one of the main global agricultural commodity products, which is corn? We would, so what they're saying, what Hannah is saying is that if we take all of the the livestock out of production and we just increase the amount of crop production or land used for crop production a little bit, we can then cover all of the, the protein and calorie supply. Hmm. So we would have to increase the amount of uh, the use of arable land. But how are you going to get all that nitrogen? Where are you going to get the nitrogen from? Are you going to get it from the fossil-based fossil based fuel? Why fossil am I having fuel. The fossil <laughs> fuel-based fertilizers? <laughs> I can't do that right now. No, because that's a that's a unsustainable system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do they talk about where they? No. No. <laughs> no. No. That's as far as Hannah gets. Right. Because I don't think she fully understands. I don't think she understands at all how to produce crops. Right. Or grow food. Yeah. Right. She's not a farmer. Yeah. She's a researcher. Mm-hmm. I think a researcher. So again, this leaves a sus- substantial deficit of nitrogen, meaning that you have to take an entire year out of production on that land. So you would double the amount of land that is needed to grow the same amount of crops if you're not going to use fossil fuel-based fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So that amount of land, now that you're saying that we're going to be taken out of production, you have to double that just right off the bat. So that's 2.2 billion hectares of land. Well, we don't even have that much arable crop right. land arable land to use for that amount of crop production like this is not possible like Mm -hmm. literally it's not possible (sighs) so do they state their opinion on how they think this is possible or is it simply just a thought it's a a hypothesis well they think they like reached the holy grail of agricultural management Hmm. being like well if we just take the 25% of protein supply off of out of production through livestock and replace it with crop production will use less land. Mm. But where are you going to get the nitrogen, honey? <laughs> where are you going to get the hundreds of pounds of nitrogen per acre per yeah. year if you're not going to use the Haber-Bosch process for that right. type of application? 
you would need to take half of that land out of production. And therefore, we would realize, I think I calculated to be a 300 million hectare, uh, 300 million hectares of land deficit for the amount of food that we would need to produce to feed the planet. Hmm. It's physically not possible. Yeah. Plus, that doesn't even take into account all of the carbon and the nitrogen lost from tillage right. for this type of crop production. Yeah. We're yeah. not even including that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Madness. Madness. All right. Okay. And so then we'll get into one other section of this. So say, say we, we start a crop rotation of... Cash crop one year, cover crop with legumes the other year. So it's a one, it's a two year rotation. That that can work for sure. But say it's a two year rotation. Where where are you going to grow all the cover crop seed? Right, because you right because that cover crop you don't want it to seed because if you have corn growing and then say the next spring or say that fall you you seed rye and it's a winter rye, so it survives the winter and grows and tries to reproduce next year, you either mow that in or till it in before heading, which, so I mean, before seed production, because otherwise it would be a weed. Right. And it's really hard to kill rye grass when it's not (laughs) in reproductive mode. So that means you have to allocate more land to the production of cover crop seed. And so that's my second problem, is they're not including the the land use allocated to the production of cover crop seed if we want to use cover crops as a means for carbon and nitrogen input right it seems like their assumption is that the seed would just magically be available or that they completely overlook the fact that the land being used to grow crops instead of animals would need to be properly managed which means using a cover crop to increase the fertility and availability of nutrients in that soil correct yeah, but they don't, that's as far as they go. They don't understand rotations. Mm-hmm. They don't understand seed production. Seed production requires lots of land. Mm-hmm. So the average yield of rye grain seed is about 35 to 50 bushels per acre, or about 1,900 to 2,800 pounds per acre. In addition, the rye cover crop seeding rate for a strong stand is about 100 pounds per acre for a cover crop. Mm-hmm. So in order to produce enough seed to put all of our agricultural lands into a winter rye cover crop rotation, 35 to 52 million hectares of land would have to be additionally taken out of food production and switched to seed production. This is because cash crop production and cover crop seed production literally cannot occupy the same unit of land in any given year. This further increases our arable land deficit to 360 million hectares of land. What are you guys talking about? Think. Think critically. That's what you were taught in school. Come on. Should we stop? Should we try to talk about the opportunity cost of not rewilding the lands yeah. or save that to a, for another podcast? Uh, well, I think, I think that's probably our last point for this, but I, I, think, I think that last, last one was well covered. Uh, just another example of the lack of, the lack of knowledge, or education behind um, people's project, projections of information. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should should we summarize? I think we should summarize. All right. Yeah, that was a lot of information for people to digest, and I think it's important just to dial in uh, a summary of what we were really going for here. Yeah. So, 
the current arguments against food production of animal-based products. We talked about livestock will never be able to be carbon neutral because they emit greenhouse gases. However, what we learned is that livestock emissions cannot be weighted equally with carbon sequestration of soil. They're only partially related. The carbon and nitrogen that is in the plant, the above-ground plant, the above-ground phytomass, was recently in its gaseous form, carbon dioxide and nitrogen gas. So the flux of carbon and nitrogen that are going into the plant in form of primary production is le- is more than the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted from plant uh, from livestock. Mm-hmm. That was not very well done. So the amount of carbon that is sequ- or fixed into plant material is almost always or always more than the amount of emissions from livestock and pasture, mm-hmm. unless there's additional inputs of feed coming onto that land, because mm-hmm. then you're bringing in more carbon. Literally, a, a cattle cannot eat more than the plant produces. Yeah. <laughs> they are. That's their limiting factor. And we saw in the Schumann paper that 50% in the continuous heavy grazing group, that 50% of the net primary production was consumed by livestock, Mm -hmm. which was over the NRCS recommended stocking rate by 33%. And and they still only ate 50% of the food that was produced. All right. Now, the second argument is that livestock production on pasture cannot sequester carbon. Well, this is just one paper that Mm -hmm. we presented in detail. Because that 12-year study. 12-year study by Schumann. Yep. And there's a myriad of other papers out there that you can look. Mm-hmm. We will continue to release more papers so people can actually sit down, print it out. Why don't you highlight it? Get out your highlighter and go through these papers with with criticism, mm-hmm. right? Well, actually, that method, they were soil sampling over or only down to five centimeters. Well, that's not very good data. We want to look at papers that might be soil sampling down to 30 or 60 centimeters. The third argument against food production of animal-based products is that a large portion of arable crops grown are consumed by livestock. Yes, this is true. About 30% of grain that is produced is fed to livestock. But the total amount of feed that the livestock industry uses is mostly in the form of roughage that is inedible, that is not edible for humans only 1.82 percent of um, livestock feed is in this in the form of human edible food so just remember that and finally if we switch to a plant-based diet we can take huge amounts of land out of production and rewild those lands further sequestering carbon well first off we know that natural terrestrial ecosystems emit huge amounts of greenhouse gases more amounts of greenhouse gases than the entire than all anthropogenic sources combined and four times the amount of the livestock industry second if we switch to just growing plants where are you going to get your nitrogen right if we use the fossil fuel based fertilizers through the Haber-Bosch process we are going to be emitting huge amounts of greenhouse gases in order to get that nitrogen to the crop which it needs to feed us. Furthermore, if you don't want to use that process, which is inefficient and unsustainable, then we will have to switch to a the natural fixation of nitrogen in our soil plant systems. And in order to do that, in order to realize the full benefits 
of nitrogen fixation by plants, leguminous plants need to be fixing nitrogen throughout the summer because that's when soil temperatures are highest. The plants are not fixing the nitrogen. The bacteria that are symbiotically relating to the plants are. And those bacteria are cannot produce their own heat. They need warm soils in order to fix nitrogen. Therefore, cash crops, the crops that we eat, cannot be grown simultaneously. Well, they can be, but it's hard. But they cannot be occupying the same area of land when cover crops are fixing nitrogen. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard process. I mean, there are... um, um, production systems out there where you grow leguminous cover crops underneath grains, but it's a hard system that requires large amounts of education and management to our farmers in order to realize these type of systems, mm-hmm. these practices. Yeah. Furthermore, if we are to use cover crops to help increase fertility on our arable lands, then we need to grow those seeds. And if we grow those seeds, they cannot be occupying, they definitely cannot be occupying the same uh, area of land as cash crops, the crops that are produced for food. Yeah. Yeah. So in summary, (laughs) um, we just hope that this provides some insight to why people should be questioning things a little further, why you should be talking to Um, local farmers, ranchers, people that are trying new things in the agriculture world, like regenerative agriculture, like rotational grazing, um, and just fight back against what you hear. Yeah. Uh, question it, ask, ask questions directly to the people that are claiming to be giving you science because they may not be. No, they might not be. They might be trying to cherry pick data to support their ideological beliefs about whether or not we should be eating animals. Right. And that's a fair belief. Like, I am not going to fight that belief. I can I can understand why some people won't eat animals. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to kill animals in order to, to eat them. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody doesn't have at least some level of reaction, emotional reaction to the slaughter of animals, then they're probably sociopaths. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll be carrying this series on a little longer, uh, going into a bit more detail on a few topics, hopefully traveling uh, in the coming months to interview some folks in Utah and wherever else we can on the topics of regenerative agriculture and um, cattle operations so hopefully those conversations will bring some more fascinating insight from people that are actually acting on this not just talking about it yeah yep for sure um two things um one one thought i really want to nail home is with the invention of the Haber-Bosch process and this new found idea that we can provide all the inorganic nutrients to plants and have them grow bigger and better, separated livestock from plant production, right? Because now all of a sudden we had this process that we could burn fossil fuel and fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and then use that fixed nitrogen for the production of food. Now we didn't didn't need nitrogen inputs from livestock. 
even though like for example the netherlands i think it's 68 percent of their nitrogen input for crop production comes from livestock two out of every three nitrogen molecules comes from livestock mm-hmm. for crop production second in the next part of the farting up a storm series we are going to be looking at the livestock greenhouse gas emissions versus carbon sequestration rates and if this is even a viable comparison we'll save that for next time yeah well thanks everyone and stay tuned as we hopefully get more and more podcasts out especially while we're on the road and hopefully maintain the quality on our travels all right sounds good until then thanks for listening everyone Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. It certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sour dough. That's patreon.com backslash the sour D-O-E. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.